My name is Darren Wiebe, and uh, our pastor, Steve Brandon, is gone. Uh, he was gone last week, and he's gone this week. He'll be back next week. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, I would encourage you. Uh, Kip Sonsek spoke. He's uh, from a pastor from the suburbs. If you didn't get that message, uh, you can download it on our website, or there's some CDs out back. I would encourage you to do that. Um, if you're visiting, welcome this morning. And for those of you who may be new to the Bible or new believers, just new Christians, you are. Uh, this is a good week for you, uh, in spite of the fact that you have to listen to me. Um, <laughs> we'll be looking at a book of the Bible that is virtually unknown, uh, virtually neglected by those who are baby Christians, those who are, have been in, grown up in church all their lives. We'll be looking at the book of Micah today. In fact, I would argue that most of you probably never have even heard of a message on Micah. And if you have, it's probably on the, the famous verse uh, 6-8. As I was talking to people this week about um, the message, I, I, I said I think that the last 12 books of the Old Testament, called the Minor Prophets, are uh, the most neglected parts of, of the Bible. And so I, I felt that that was true of my own life, and so it was about four months ago that I started to read and study and think about these minor prophets. And as I read and as I thought about them, I realized there's a good reason they're ignored. Um, and as I read Micah, I was especially reminded why nobody ever talks about this book. Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to understand. There's difficult words. There are gruesome images. Uh, it's everything... Uh, you don't want to preach about. Um, in fact, I came across this quote from Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. He says this, the prophets, meaning the minor prophets, have a queer way of talking, like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. And then two Bible scholars said this in response to this. They said, no prophet illustrates this statement better than Micah. It is easy to get lost in the mix of judgment and salvation speeches. The structure of this book is hard to fathom. Well, I would say that that is very true. But I would also say that in my study and in my reading and thinking about this book, few studies have been as impactful, as thought-provoking, as, and as encouraging as Micah. But... Um, I'd like to pray because I need help uh, to make sense of, of Micah. So would you pray with me? Lord, you promise in your word that you will um, gain, give wisdom and you will give understanding to those who ask. To those who ask. And Lord, I just pray for myself. I pray for uh, these people that I love, that you love, um, that are loved by you. I pray that you would grant us understanding in the book of Micah. Uh, for there are deep and impactful words that speak to our life at this very moment in Rockford, Illinois today. So I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you would, if you would turn to your, uh, in your Bibles to Micah. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. It is probably hard for you to find it since it's uh, little known. It is on page 658. Um, and as you're turning there, I want to read you a small section of a New York Times article. Um, yes, I do read the New York Times. You can send all complaints to Steve Brandon. Um, but um, 
I was reading, it was almost an, a year ago. As I read Micah, I thought immediately about this uh, op-ed piece. It's by Ross Dothod. It's a, called The Case for Hell. And the starting paragraph says this. Here's a re- revealing snapshot in religion in America. On Easter Sunday, two of the top three books on Amazon.com's Religion and Spirituality bestseller list mapped the geography of the afterlife. One was Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back, an account of a four-year-old's near-death experience as dictated to his pastor father. I, this was a year ago. Incidentally, I logged back on today, and it's still number two. Um, but and then here's, he continues, and he says this. The other was Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived, in which the evangelical past preacher Rob Bell argues that hell might not exist. Now, if, if uh, I read this online, and as you're, you're, you may be aware, there's a lot of comments that people can then post to in response to this article. Uh, and then other readers can then recommend this article or, or not recommend it, kind of like if you want to like something on Facebook or that type of thing. Well, here was one of, one of the comments, the fourth most recommended reader comment. It says this, by John B. of Staten Island. I'm sorry, but the doctrine of hell is simply monstrous. If a God creates a world, deliberately fills it with weak and foolish beings, and then tortures some of those beings forever because they've behaved in weak and foolish ways, then that God is a demon, pure and simple. There is no complexity to this argument, no way around it, no conceivable definition of the words justice and love that could ever apply to such a God. So that's what John says. Take a deep breath. I'm not going to talk about hell today. But the question that I do want to ask is, what is God like? Is God a kind God, or is He malevolent? Does He judge? And if He judges, does He judge with eagerness or with remorse? Is He a God that is a demon? Is He a God that no conceivable definition of words or justice could ever apply to such a God, as John says? Now, I know what some of you are thinking immediately is probably, I have no use... There's no point in hearing about the attribute of God. I have a lot of other things in my life. I have financial difficulty. There's family problems. It really doesn't matter what God is like to me. And to you, I would just say this. As we'll find out, the Israelites had a profoundly wrong and skewed idea of who God was or who they thought He was. And it had devastating ramifications on their life. So I would say who God is and how you respond to that God is all makes all the difference in your world. So I'm going to read Micah 1 and 2. It's a long passage, but I think you'll understand why after, um, after I read it. I'll be reading out of the ESV, which is a little different translation than you might have in front of you. Um, but it starts with like this. Starting in verse 1, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places on the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. 
All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of the prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethel Aphra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. To, it, was, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Merosheth Gath. To the, the houses of Aksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merosheth. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald. Cut your, off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Chapter 2 starts this way. Woe to you who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his inheritance. A man, uh, they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. For it is, will be a time of disaster. In that day you shall take up a taunt song against you. They shall take up a taunt song against you and mourn bitter, bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said in the house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of your uncleanness that destroys with a grievous dis destruction. If a man should go about and under wind and lies, saying, 
I will preach to you of wind and strong drink. He would be a preacher for this people. But verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like the flock in his pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Those are cheery words, aren't they? Well, I think to start to understand Micah, you have to understand the context. There has to be, um, and I think to do that, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. And so we see at the beginning of of the Bible, there's a man named Abram, who the Lord calls out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he goes and he becomes Abraham, and he has a son at an old age whose, whose name is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son whose name is Jacob. And Jacob, in turn, has 12 sons who become known as the 12 tribes of, Jerusalem, 12 tribes of Israel. Sorry. But th- through a famine, they go off to Egypt, and in time they become slaves in the land of Egypt. And the, but the Lord rescues them through using Moses' But after 40 years, as we talked about last week, they are in the wilderness. And finally, they make it into the, back into the promised land. After a period of time, the Lord raises up a man named David to be the king. Then his son, who is Solomon, becomes a king. And in that time, there is a, the peak of the United Nation of Israel. There is much prosperity. There is great peace. But then, as he dies... Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. And Jeroboam comes to Rehoboam, another man, and Jeroboam says, you know, Solomon, was your dad was a good king, but he was oppressive to us. There was a lot of taxation. There was a lot of obligations that the nation had. So will you restrict or not weigh, be so weighty on our, the people? Will you lift the restrictions that are on us? Lift the taxes? And Rehoboam in his folly denies the request. So Jeroboam raises a revolt in which the twelve tribes or the, are called the northern tribes. They split off and they become Israel. Rehoboam then still is king, but he is only king of two nations. It's called the southern tribes or Judah. And now we come to our story. So we, there's a divided kingdom. There's Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and there's Judah, which are the two tribes in the south. And there's a divided kingdom we come to the 8th century B.C., there's a great time of prosperity amongst both, uh, amongst both tribes. But there's a powerful kingdom, Assyria, off to the east. They're coming to power and is gaining strength. But God acts and out of His great love. In verse 1, as we see, it says, The word of the Lord comes to Micah. So Micah comes as a prophet. And he's one of the prophets that speaks to both Judah and to Israel. And he warns them of their continued disobedience of the Lord. After the divided kingdom, they continue in their disobedience and rebellion of the Lord. And Micah is warning them, along with Isaiah, who is a contemporary of his, that if they continue, they will, there will be ramifications for that. Now, Micah's ministry is anywhere from 25 to 50 years long. So he has a long ministry of, of, and prophesies for a long period of time. So I think to best understand Micah, 
This isn't, you don't just read this through from chapter 1 to 7. I think this is more three sermons or three messages spoken at three different points in his ministry. So I think message 1 is 1 through 2. That's why I want to discuss that whole message. And then the second message, the second context is in verses 3 through 5. And then the last message is in 6 through 7. So as we go through, through Micah 1 and 2, I want to ask five questions. And the first question is this. Does God judge? Is He a God of destruction? Does God destroy? Does He get mad? And the answer is very clear. Look in verse 2. It says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, or listen. Pay attention. Because it says in verse 3, The Lord is coming out of His place and He will tread down upon the high places. The mountains will melt under Him and the valleys will be split open. So He is coming. He will make Himself known and He will be a judge. So the answer is yes, He will be a judge. Now in that time, I can just imagine the Israelites hearing this and they're saying, yes, get Him, God! And then, but who does He say destruction will come to? It is not the nation of Assyria, but rather, verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So will God judge? The answer is yes. Now these people, if you look in chapter 2, verse 6, they were talking to, to Micah because they didn't think that God would do this. So they say, do not preach. They're talking to Micah. Do not preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And in response, Micah is saying, oh yes, although you are His chosen ones, it will take place. Now I acknowledge immediately there's this is a difficult thought. We don't want to hear these words. In fact, this New York Times article, Ross Douthat, goes on and he says this, quote, Large majorities of Americans believe in God and heaven and miracles and prayer, but belief in hell lags well behind and the fear of damnation seems to have evaporated. And so I want to talk to two people Two groups of people, more or less. First, maybe are you a skeptic or a non-believer that are, that are here and you think that this is just too phantasm, too much of a phantasm, a fantastic thing that is not clear, doesn't really make sense. And then maybe secondly, talk to those who may be believers here that have difficulty understanding this. So if you are a skeptic here, who or someone who doesn't believe this, my question to you would be why? Why is this the case? Are you someone who, like one of the commenters of this article of the New York Times said this, I find it creepy when intelligent people write serious sounding essays about things like hell being real or at least metaphysically important. What is the reason? Why do you think that God is not like this if you are a skeptic? Have you thought or have you based it on anything or just metaphysical thoughts. Think for a moment, though, for three things about God. First of all, think about God is everywhere, as the Bible says. God says that the image of God comes from His throne and is known everywhere. Psalm 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is timeless. Not only that, He sees all time equally and with great clarity. He knows all events that will happen, all events that you have done, all events that will take place, all events that you will do. 
Listen to this quote from a Bible scholar. And let this sink in. God somehow stands above, somehow stands above time and is able to see it all as present in his own consciousness. Listen to that again. God somehow stands above time and is able to see it all as presence, as present in his own consciousness. Wow. You see that what the result is when he comes and he makes himself known in verse 4. It says the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. And then secondly, maybe, are you a believer that has difficulty with this? Are you someone that only wants to think of God being a God of love? In fact, the second book that Ross uh, talked about in his book, A Case for Hell, is, is, was just about that, about Rob Bell, a pastor that I used to appreciate listening to. And that was his very point, is that God is too loving, He loves people too much that there can never be a way in which He would condemn people to hell. If you have trouble thinking God only as a God of love, or if you cannot grasp that He can be a God of wrath, I would just say this to you. You don't understand love if you don't understand what you've been saved from. If you don't understand the wrath and the punishment that was awaiting us, if not for Christ. It was Spurgeon who said, He who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of his Savior. See, if you aren't rescued from much, you aren't grateful for much. There's a story in Luke 7 in the New Testament and Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. And there's a woman of ill repute, most likely a prostitute, and she comes and she's weeping and she washes the Lord's feet with her tears. And there is much discussion and people are going about and, and they are sneering or smirking or criticizing. And Jesus says this to Simon, who's the Pharisee. He said, there's two men who owed this other man money. One owed a large sum of money. One owed a million dollars and another owed him ten dollars. And the Lord says, this man to whom this money was owed forgave both of them. To who do you think was most grateful? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said, uh, I'm sorry, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet, and she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much, and she shall be. And, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And that's Luke 7. So I would just think, if you have trouble thinking about God as only being a God of love, you don't understand what you have been saved from. And then secondly, the, question, the second question I have is, why does God judge? Why is He angry? 
As we saw in verse 5, it is for the transgressions and for the sins of Israel. In verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The Lord is judging them for the sin for the, in Samaria is where they uh, built the temple for Baal. And he's saying, for these idols I will lay waste. Well, we don't have idols today. But what we do have is we have idols of our heart. Our heart is an idol factory generating idol after idol after idol. An idol in our lives is anything that we desire or we pursue or we want greater than God. And our hearts are idol factories continuously generating those idols. And the Lord says, for those things in our lives and in the lives of the Israelites, I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and from the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So thirdly, the question is, how does God judge? And here's perhaps the most terrifying answer of all. The answer is this. God judges by giving people exactly what they want. He says to the nation of Israel, you want to go after other gods? You want to be like these other nations? You don't want to do what I have asked for your, own glo- for your own good, very well. I will give you to the other nations. I will give you to these other gods that you call gods. In verses 11 through 16, um, there's uh, an irony. There's a play on words. He uses, there's all these different hard-to-pronounce uh, cities in Judah. And what they are is they, they mean something. And the Lord takes those words and He inverts them. He plays an irony on them and He says, you know, this thing that you're supposed to be, that you... Take pride in I'm going to turn that around and it's going to be the source of your destruction. So just look at a couple of them. Just verse 13. It says, Harness the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lachish. Well, in Hebrew, the word Lachish means steeds. And so he's saying, you're going, to chariot, you're going to harness your horses to chariots, but not to go fight. You're going to be putting, you're going to be putting your fast horses on these chariots so that you can flee. Or in verse 14, Morashath Gath, he says this, Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morashath Gath. That means, that word means one who is betrothed. And the Lord says, I'm going to give a parting gift to you. And you know what it's going to be? Assyria is going to come and destroy you. And they're going to get your dowry. They're going to be, you're going to be betrothed to Assyria. Or verse 15, it says this, I will come and bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. Merashah means to take possession of or to conquer. And he's saying, but it used to be what you, you, what you took pride in. You came into the promised land and you were one who took possession. You were one who conquered. You know what? Now, you will be conquered. You will be taken you, and dispossessed. You know, or in, verses, or in chapter 2, if you go there, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And back in those days, you know, people who had aspirations or who desired things, what they would do is they would, you know, they, they would desire more land. That was, a, that was a status symbol. That was how you became wealthy, was you had, had land or you acquired more animals. And so he's saying, hey, you, you covet fields. You want other people's, your brothers and sisters. You want their fields very well. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come and bring Assyria, and they're going to own all of it. You won't have any fields. Um, 
reminded me of an illustration. Uh, I'm sure this doesn't happen at your house, but it does happen at our house, perhaps even this morning. Um, maybe if you have two children, they usually, sometimes, I mean, just at our house, not at your house, but at our house, they can fight over a toy or something or a bag, in the case of this morning. Um, and what we used to do is we, we used to say, well, who, who had it first? And then we'd give it to the person who had it first. And as we've hopefully gotten better at parenting, what we realize is it's a hard issue. The fact is that they're fighting and they're arguing, and so we just go and we take this silly-looking bag from these kids and say, very well, you don't have a bag at all to fight over. And the Lord's kind of saying this. You want to be like other nations? Very well. You want to have other lands? Very well. You won't have anything. And we see this all through the Bible. And God gives people exactly what they want. He gives them over. In Romans 1.24, He says, He gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. He gave them up to their dishonorable passions. Verse 28, He gave them up to a debased mind. And really, ultimately, that's what hell is. People in this life who say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want to be my own God. And in the next life, God says, very well. That will be your request. That is your wish. It will be granted. You will have none of the blessings. You will have none of the joys of which I am the author of. You don't want me? Very well. And they will be condemned to a place in which God exerts His punishment. Well, we see this happened. We see that this happened in Syria. came in 722 what they did in, in the northern kingdom, in Israel, the ten northern tribes, they came, they laid it waste, and the northern tribe of Israel disappeared off the face of the map. And so the fourth question that I ask, that we ask of this text is, do you want this judge? Is God right to judge? And very often, our answer is no. We want to be our own gods. We want to answer to ourselves. We want, look, in verse chapter, in chapter 2, verse 11, we want to be like these people who say, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. The focus here isn't really on the wine and the strong drink, but on the man who's preaching lies to these people. They don't want to hear the Micah's word. They want to hear a man, someone else say, eat, drink, and be merry, for it's all going to be okay. There's no destruction that's coming. Those they want to hear. <clears throat> Listen to back to this New York Times article. The three most commented uh, comments, the three most recommended comments. The first most recommended comment by 900, almost 900 readers says this in, as an excerpt. Some may need metaphysical carrots and sticks to know right from wrong, but the rest of us simply try to treat others the way we would want to be treated. Or John from Seoul, Korea said, The rest of the arguments of God, heaven, hell, and our ethical and moral behavior being predicated on these entities is pure sophistry. Perhaps a sophistry firmly rooted in certain human psychological frailties, fear, ego, etc., but sophistries nevertheless. Just live your life decently, no matter, no, no easy matter for an American, and you'll be a happy pile of dust in the end. And then lastly, Charles of New York said this, And so, yes, Mr. Douthat, I believe in the existence of hell, as it is a hell on this earth that I'm addressing. 
However, it is one of our own making. So, the question is, do you want this God? Because here's your alternative. If you don't want this God, the alternative is you become your own God. And so, if you become your own God, you set what is hell. You set what is good. You set what is right. You say, just treat others the way you want to be treated. The problem is, other people don't do that. And the, the, other, the greater problem is, you aren't able to do it yourself. As he says, as Gemli said, the f- most recon- just try. The problem is, if you aren't going to accept this God, then you have to accept yourself being God. And that's all in fine and good until you want others to be judged when you are wronged. Look in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Verse 2, They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house. Look at verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe of those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Verse 9, the women of my people you drive out for their delightful, from their delightful houses, for from their young children you take away my splendor forever. My question is, don't you want somebody who is a judge of those things? There's great injustice. There are atrocities and things that are going on. Don't you want somebody who's going to hold everyone accountable for those things? There's estimates anywhere from 12 to 27 million slaves in the world as we sit here today. What do we do with that? Who is to be accountable for that? Do we just say, just try to live your life as well as you can? Well, do we just say, hell is this life on earth? There are terrible atrocities that are going on throughout all the world that will never those people who are guilty of them will never spend a day in jail on this earth. There's great wrongs and injustices going on in your house next door, in houses here, in your house. There's wrongs being committed. The question is, if you don't want this God, who is your God? It's you and it's one of your own making. See, don't you want a God who ultimately controls all things? Don't you want a God who is all-powerful? Because if you don't have a God that's all-powerful, there's other things that are, more, that are bigger than Him. You're, he's left to at the mercy of these other things that are bigger or stronger than He is. So, the, my last question is this. Question number five. Is God only a judge? Is this all we have to do? can do? Is our only response what, what Micah does in verse 8 of chapter 1? Is all we can do, do this? For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches for her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Is that all we can do? Can we just weep and wail? As I think it is a right response to God's destruction, we should, have, we should not glory in the fact that people, um, there, is, there is injustice in the world. We should be um, people who fight for justice, who are men who fight for mercy, and women who try to root out wrongs where we see them. 
But thankfully, there are, there's the last two verses in, in Micah. There's a bright ray of hope. There is a light. It says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in his pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The Lord passes on before them. The, the, the king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. Well, what happened in, in 722 is, uh, as, as we said, Assyria in the north, they came and they destroyed the northern tribes. But Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, said, well, I think it's better just to pay, pay Assyria off. And so there was great... Uh, there was great oppression and there was, great, there was a great impact on that. But then late, the next king was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the next king of Judah. And we see in Jeremiah 26 that he listened to Micah. He listened to, the, to Micah's warning to his prophecy. And it says this in Micah, uh, Jeremiah 26:19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? talking about Micah, did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced? So what happened is Hezekiah said, you know what, Assyria, or to Sennacherib, who was the king of of Assyria at the time, he said, I'm not going to pay tribute to you anymore. Well, there was was an impact on that. Sennacherib comes with his great army and he lays waste to Judah. In fact, uh, Lachish was one of the cities as we talk about. And it was just utterly destroyed. One of the most uh, famous archaeological artifacts in all of, uh, the, the world is called the Sennacherib Prison. There's a picture in the kids' notes. It's also called the Taylor Prism. And it's a hexagon, I believe, and it's about 30 inches tall. And it just details all of Sennacherib's victories and all that he did. And he just laid waste to Judah except for Jerusalem. And so he comes up against Jerusalem and Hezekiah is, uh, is holed up along with a small remnant. And this is what we find. If you go to, uh, to 2 Kings 19, go to 2 Kings 19, we'll pick up the story. Sennacherib mocks uh, Hezekiah. In fact, in, in Isaiah he says, hey, Hezekiah, I'll give you 2,000 horses. I'll give you 2,000 horses that you can uh, fight against me with. Here's the only, here's the only uh, hook. You have to put men on the horses. So he mocks them. And so uh, in, in 2 Kings 19, here's what Hezekiah does. I'll, be, I'll start in verse 15. 2 Kings 19, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are thy, the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made, no, made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us 
pleased from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, O Lord, are God alone. And then we see Isaiah prophesy and go to verse 31. It says this, Isaiah saying, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, this is to Sennacherib, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city and to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home to and lived in, at Nineveh. And, he would, and as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramalach and Sherezar, his son, struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And so we see this comes true. If you go back to Micah, verse 12, it says, I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather a remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold. So he does this. There's all, the only thing that's left of all Israel is, is gone. The northern tribes are destroyed, have disappeared. They've been taken into captivity. They just have not even Judah. All we have is Jerusalem, this little spot. And so the Lord, he assembles all of them. He will gather the remnant. He will put them in a sheep, uh, like sheep in a fold, a noisy multitude of men. Here's this noisy multitude of men. What does the Lord do? It says, they will, the remnant, if you go back to Second uh, Kings 31, it says, the remnant will go out of Jerusalem. Just like we see in verse 13 of Micah, it says, they will break through and pass the gate going out by it. We see that the Lord worked a great miracle for Israel. But verse 12 and 13 is not just talking about Hezekiah. It's prophesying of a greater shepherd, of a greater king. It talks about a shepherd who will gather all the people. Well, John 10 says this, Jesus comes and He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. Verse 14, I am the Good Shepherd and I know My own and My own know Me. And verse 13 says that the people who are brought together, who are in this fold, will now go out. They will break out with the Lord at their head. What we know is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Lord in Christ, He assembled all people to Himself for those who believe in Him. And then He says, go out in the Great Commission. See, God makes Himself presence, His presence known, makes Himself known in two ways. Through wrath or through His blessing. And so I would urge you that through Christ, that there we can put our faith in Him and that we can know His blessing. Because it is in Christ, 
on the cross, God showed His ultimate judgment. His divine judgment for all sin was shown on the cross. And so we do not have to experience this wrath. We do not have to experience this judgment that is impending for all those who don't believe in Him. So let me just pray and we'll end our message. Lord, I thank You for Christ. For who through You we can experience all the blessings of You. And we do not have to experience any of Your wrath. Lord, I pray that we would grasp what it is like to be a sheep of the Great Shepherd. And what it is like to then go out with you at our head. So we pray that you would uh, be with us this week. We pray that you would uh, be with the Brandons as they come back next week. We thank you and praise you for this time and for your word and for Micah. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.